use my axe. I'm hungry! Episode 9, I think, of Get to Work Early. I tried to write down, like, the introduction, and of course I botched it. So that's fine. We're, we're doing it live. So hello, and welcome to Get to Work Early. This is, of course, the podcast for anyone who's ever been frustrated with their professional writing life. God knows that's me. I am your host. I am Cameron Hurley. In this episode, we'll be talking about why women are burning down the system, burning all this shit down, why it's okay to delete Facebook, Yes, even if you have books to promote. And writing and mental health, uh, as well as some uh, advanced craft discussions sort of about how to manage burnout and, and writer expectation, writing expectations from professionals and stuff in the field. It is very early today, so I'm, I'm not drinking. I'm only drinking, um, what am I drinking? La Croix Cran Raspberry. So you'll have, to, you'll have to excuse my lack of drinking. I know, get to work. So without further ado, let's go ahead and jump in. So I want to talk about, and I know, I, I feel like I'm, I'm kind of late to the party here because this was supposed to be my April get to work Hurley, and then I just got busy. And why why I and, and so many other women, uh, why we're seeing sort of this this resurgence. And it's it's been always, right, we've always been sexism is bad and burn it all down, but it's been incredibly clear right now. Um, and it's, it's not even like just me specifically, but a whole lot of women, uh, especially here in the U.S., who have started calling out abuse. And we've always done it, right? But there's something about some sort of tidal wave, right? It's this abuse in record numbers. And we're calling out all these people like have been doing this shit for years and oftentimes pretty openly. Like this was the kind of stuff like 10 years ago. I'm like, well, yeah, that's. They're shit and they're terrible. I'm not going to name all these guys, obviously, because that's what Google's for. But I do want to point out why I do think it's happening right now. My mom actually works in human resources. She has done so for many, many years, like 30 years. And she, she told me about an incident where she had to tell someone accused of harassment, listen, women are, are done putting up with this. Do you watch the news? You need to stop this shit. That's a paraphrase, obviously, but it was interesting that it was bleeding out into so many different industries. Again, that it's become s such a part of the cultural conversation. It is beyond the internet. There's so many things that I see a lot of times, and it's you know Twitter hashtags and uh, all of these things where I feel like they don't really leave the internet. And this is one obviously that is bled over into everything. I mean, we're seeing you know women speaking very publicly about it in very public places, uh, especially in the film industry, obvious, and in many interviews and and stuff like that so it's not just quote unquote online the truth is that yeah like women are done I know I'm done and I was thinking I was thinking about why again in my younger years oh yeah again that's just the way it is if you want to be a woman working in the industry you have to know people are gonna treat you like shit and you have to call them out on it whenever you can but it's just men are shit and that's what we have to deal with and it's, it's something you're gonna have to learn how to deal with and I was thinking about why and I realized that in large part, for me, especially my doneness, but I'm sure for lots of other women as well, it had to do with the election. And I get that, you know, that obviously these stories have been going on forever about some of these, these big titans, but sort of the, the jumping on, I do feel that there is something. So my whole life, 
my family told me I could do anything. You know, even society pretends that, hey, you know, sexism and racism or homophobia are over, whatever. It's all a lie. But as a kid, you don't know. You don't understand these systems, right? So as a kid, you're like, oh, yes, it's all over now. We all love each other. And even like society pretended that if you worked hard, and again, I was growing up white, so white society, oh, yeah, if you work hard, you know, little white girl, everyone's equal now. Even a woman could be president. That was a possible thing that could possibly happen. And I grew up, you know, and again, as a little kid, you don't know that these systems of oppression are still in place. You're just like, oh, yes, that's old. That's totally old news. And then... We saw what happened when the most qualified person to ever run for president went up against the most unqualified blowhard in the entire fucking universe. And we saw how she got treated for feeling she was owed her due, right? Like she she put in the work. We saw how she was treated for being so well qualified. Like here she is. This woman, literally, I've been watching playing in this fucking game, working this stupid-ass system that nobody likes for 30 years, and she's still kicking and alive, and, you know, after after all these guys, you know, spent 30 or 40 years really trying to take her down, and the best they could do was, you know, she sent some emails and her husband's a dick, and we knew her husband was a dick, and we still elected him president, but somehow... You know, it's not okay for her. But anyway, all of her work, all of her knowledge, all of her power, all of her connections, all of her playing the game. I mean, she played the most boring. She did everything right. If if this would have been a normal election and I was watching, I mean, literally I was watching going hurt. She's playing the beats, right? Tim Kaine. Of course, she's going to choose a white guy as her uh, running mate. She's not going to be interesting. And she's like Elizabeth Warren or Cory Booker. Of course not. She's going to go with a safe choice because she's going to move to the middle because she knows how the game is played. Well, the problem is that the game had changed. And so she was playing the old the old game, the one that she'd grown up in, the one that she knew how to play. Still, right? Playing the game, doing everything right, being amazing and smart and making all the right decisions was not enough against some completely unqualified piece of shit old white guy who can barely string together two sentences. And... The indignity of that resonated, I know, with so many of us. You know, because we've been told, and I, as a feminist, I've been told, oh, to change the system, you got to, you know, work work within the system from within. And then we do. We get to the very top. And wow, really? Like, really? So this happens to women at, like, every single level. And I think that's why it resonated, right? It resonated so much. Like every single level, we've always been told that somehow it's still our fault. Obvious systematic sexism and power imbalances weren't in play at all. It was just, here's all the things you did wrong and it's all your fault. If only you would have played the game better. And I see this in every, my, my day job industry, in marketing and advertising. We see it in publishing. Every big corporation. The higher up you go the harder it gets to break through that sexist ceiling. I I saw this at another place I was at too, where you would get to like middle management. There were tons of women in middle management, but as you started getting to upper management and executive level, like they started to to disappear. There, There still is that ceiling and they expect you to be perfect. When in fact, there is no perfect and they will always blame you. Because it's about you, right? It's not about their perception of you. It is, of course, about you. And white men sure as hell aren't supposed to be perfect. They all get a pass. They can literally go shoot unarmed people on the street and steal billions of dollars and kill people by destroying Obamacare. And folks go, well, yeah, but surely he just had a hard day. You know, he has some redeeming qualities. You know, he's really on my side because we're used to that. And it's all bullshit. Women have to be perfect. And surprise, are never perfect because you're perfect or because you're never perfect. You can never win. 
And that's why I'm ready to burn it all down. To burn this mother down. And I completely get it. And that, that is what happens. When, when you create a system where people cannot get justice within that system, you're they're going to revolt. And, and the funny thing is, I've studied revolutions and resistance movements. Awful things happen during violent revolutions. People starve, they die violently, there's disease, refugees. You get this total breakdown of law and order. It's the guillotine. Who wants the fucking guillotine? No one wants the guillotine. So like after doing all that research myself, like I no longer felt that burn it all down was a good radical feminist path. And then like these days, these days I'm starting to realize late in my life, again, like we're all becoming communists as we get older, as opposed to how it used to be, like they're, oh, you'll be, a, you'll be a socialist when you're young, and then you'll become a conservative. Oh no, these days I'm starting to realize that only a real massive and radical movement is truly going to change anything at all. We assumed like, oh, well, we'll put Obama in office and it will change everything, and it's like, well, he can only do so much by himself, first of all, and also he's a lot more centrist uh, than. A lot of people thought. And he also came to, to rule from the center. He was actually incredibly, uh, you know, he's not, not like this hard, radical, crazy leftist. And that was kind of problem because people tried to paint him that way. And when you try and paint, paint a centrist as a leftist, all of a sudden everything moves. We then start to see, you know, white nationalists and Nazis are like, we're the alt-right. That is a, a valid, quote unquote, political movement all of a sudden because we've moved everybody uh, and I'm like, I'll show you leftist movement. Monsters do not die quietly. That's the moral of the story. And uh, our capitalist old white guys in power are no different. I'm done. You're done. We're all done. I is that enough to get us to radical change? Probably not as long as people can still afford food and Netflix. But it's coming real fast. The more wealth is that's hoarded at the top, the more we strip healthcare away, and the more desperate people are going to become. That's the issue that people in power have to learn like again and again and again. You can only take and take and take so much from the masses before they bring out the guillotines. And I don't want to watch that happen in my lifetime. I have researched that enough. I've seen it enough. I don't need to experience that. But so long as they make these peaceful solutions impossible, through gerrymandering, the continued harassment and disenfranchisement of voters and their rights. All that you leave for people is violent revolution. And trust me, rich people, nobody wants that. Nobody. Like, you can get enough rich things and still, like, share and share, like, and still pay people a living wage, and then they're not going to revolt and get a guillotine. Like, this is not hard. This is not difficult. You can actually reward people for working within the system or the people will burn down the system. We're seeing that absolute erosion, again, of the middle class in uh, the Mer America in particular, the dissolution of all those safety nets and all those things that were put into place. Again, during the New Deal, the last time, and people will argue perhaps the 60s and 70s, but to be honest, the last time we were really at the cusp of overthrowing our government was the Great Depression. People were ready to be communists for, for good reason. Uh, everything was completely fucked up. The rich people ran away. And the rich people, again, were still fine. The 1% was still fine. In the meantime, everybody else was running around and freaking out and uh, dying because they had nothing. 
more and more, and we've been hearing whispers more and more, right, that we're due for another depression, another what, recession, another another recession. Uh, that is not going to be a pretty time. It is not going to be pretty because it's already not a good time. So I don't want to see us there, but I can hear it coming. You know, my history brain knows it's coming. And I totally get it. And I understand why we are here for sure. So speaking of revolutions and dirty propaganda, did I ever tell my my master's degree is actually looked at how the African National Congress used propaganda to in their war against apartheid and to, to recruit female fighters. So anyway, I I geek out obviously about propaganda. It's a fascinating time to live through right now. So speaking of propaganda. I did want to talk a little about Facebook. So as a marketer, like I love Facebook. As an individual, I got rid of my personal page, I think back in 2012, after it showed me how fucking racist all my friends and family were. I was like, do I really need to be connected to all of these people? Do I really need to be subjected to their violently reshared racist and sexist and anti-healthcare propaganda all fucking day? And no, I do not. There's no reason I need to be connected to these people. These are horrible human beings. Yes, we have been tangentially through blood or, you know, sitting in the same classroom together. We have some connection. But I don't need to see their propaganda all day. I just don't. I kept my Facebook fan page for posting updates about my work. And I have like, I don't know, 1,200 or 1,300 people who follow that. Which, again, they hardly see anything anyway because Facebook wants you to pay for ads. And Facebook is like the biggest, the biggest, you know, Ponzi scheme, <laughs> the biggest pyramid scheme ever. You bring your entire audience over there and then they, so that now they're hooked into the ecosystem, then they make you pay to actually reach your audience. It's just amazing. I mean, you got to give them credit. That's great. I would be so, I'd be take all my money and run. But anyhow, once I did all of that, I never once missed it. I did not miss Facebook. Does Facebook really make your life better? I mean, can't you just like email your Aunt Edna photos of your kids? Do you really need to see like all of our immigrants are ruining our country memes? <laughs> Do you really still want to hear about how the kid, you know, you sat next to in math class in third grade is doing? I mean, really? When was the last time you really talked to him? Do you know his last name if it wasn't for Facebook? This is something I see so much in people saying, well, I just don't know how I would keep in touch with all these people. And I'm like, well, what, what would you do before Facebook? You probably wouldn't be in touch with these people. And you know what? That would be okay because they're really not your friends anyway. Someone I know got into a, you know, Facebook brawl in, in the comments of somebody's uh, section. It became this huge deal with the family. And I'm like, you know, sometimes being able to comment and say whatever you need to say about anyone's updates after you've had a couple glasses of wine is probably just because you can doesn't mean you should. So don't. <laughs> don't drunk dial. Don't drunk Facebook. We all want to nurture our connections. But let's be real. There are better and less insidious social networks. They can be used for that. It really is okay to give up your time sink in social media. And I, I, I say that as a writer, right? I understand that we, to some extent, feel that we really need it. And that's why I have a fan page. Especially now, when more and more of this type of media is being weaponized to use against us. 
it's it's a good time to be done. I grew up online during a time when it was clear, right, that nothing we did was going to be private because emails and posts can be dug up and they can be used against you and, and the people you love. And I get email is evidence. Facebook is evidence. I've heard this very often in professional conversations lately. I have people who will call me when <laughs> we will discuss something over the phone as opposed to email just because it's probably better that way especially right now when we have hackers and people trying to get into all of your data and everything that you put online can be weaponized can be used against you at any time especially if you're a public person they're always going to find a way to do that here's the the real worry you know evidence these days isn't just for like crimes right it's also about critiquing the state itself and our self-styled supreme leader we're getting there guys i'm a historian listen it's getting really bad and phone calls can be tapped too, and I get that, but they're less likely to be brought forward during like the discovery phase of a trial for speaking against the Supreme Leader, if we're afforded such a luxury. Whew. All right, so that that's a little dark, <laughs> a little dark. I too have clearly been spending too much time on social media, and uh, Twitter too can, can rot your brain. I've locked that one down quite a bit, but still, still, the, real the grim reality gets through. So to sum up, do you really need to know what your great aunt Jenna has to say about the president or keep up with the relationship drama of that kid in chemistry class who, you know, used to grab your hair? You don't. These are not real relationships. You are losing nothing, I promise, by stepping away from the propaganda machine. Speaking of mental health, maintaining your sanity and mental health. Let's talk about writing and mental health. I mean, that's dark, I guess, sort of too, but there can be light at the end. So as many of you know, we, or many of you know who've followed me for some time, I pretty much had a breakdown right before my book Empire Ascendant came out in 2014. My anxiety had gotten so bad that I was having panic attacks like whenever I had to go see the doctor. And I was spending like these anxious hours dreading even the most mundane tasks. I knew that if I didn't get some help, I wasn't going to be able to complete the blog tour for that book. It took all the energy I had just to like get out of bed and go to work without having a public meltdown and like clawing everyone's faces off. And I feel it's important to note this. This anxiety was all pretty warranted. This is, it was understandable. We live in capitalism. Even back in 2014, where my career was like I was really just recovering after a pretty awful experience with my first trilogy I was intimately aware that at any moment this career that I've been trying to build could be completely over so add to that like the usual job and health insurance and life stress and I was just falling apart okay so I'm one of those people who's very good during times of great stress as long as that stress is a massive fight or flight event compressed over a few hours or even a day I can get intensely focused and calm like I calm myself and I just push through it right I, I just push through anything when my sister from another mister I was uh, her birthing partner and I remember afterwards after uh, it was a bit of a trial as, as every birth is different and crazy one of the nurses actually asked me afterwards she said are you a professional doula <laughs> Do you do this for a living? Because I'm like so calm and all right, we're pushing it. Because it was fraught. There were some things going on. But you just, you go, yes, I know. This is very serious. But we need to get this baby out right now. 
so that it is not going to be really bad. I am very good in, in those sorts of, okay, I know what we need to do to get through this stressful situation. My brain and me, and I go into this mode and it's wonderful. The trouble is when that stress becomes chronic stress. And there are all these studies about how chronic stress can break you down and pretty much destroy your health over time. For me, the stress of a book a year and a day job and the worries over healthcare, those were eating me alive. Because my body, I mean most of our bodies, are they're simply not made to endure that kind of ongoing stress. We're made for the types of stress I'm good at, right? Short, sharp, intense periods where we need to focus and act quickly. Oh my god, it's a predator. Oh my gosh, someone's leg was just chopped off. <laughs> like those are the things that we need to understand and get through. But ongoing stress, well, it's no wonder that we fall apart after years and years and years and years of that. You're literally living at this heightened state for years. You can't do that. You're going to burn out. Now I mention this because I feel that so many people believe that asking for help when there's this horrible anxiety or depression or you know, your mental health is kind of falling apart. So asking for help, whether that's therapy and or drugs, they feel it's some kind of like a personal moral failing. And I want to remind people, human beings were not meant to live the way that we do today, the way that many of us do today. So my, my personal ideal life is to like just live in the middle of like 100 acres, with like 25 dogs, and maybe go into town once a month or twice a month and go drink at the pub, right, with four or five people and call that socializing. And that's it. Like, that's enough for me. And chopping wood, hauling water, and I'd be happy, uh, you know, writing my book. And that's the sort of breezy life that I would love. And granted, again, it sounds very idyllic, blah, blah, blah. Yes, we need penicillin. <laughs> we need drugs. We need vaccines. Obviously, need drugs to live in order to live in the middle of the woods. But in an ideal life, I would live that way and that I would be mentally clear and focused, especially if it was sunny all the time because I also have seasonal, seasonal depression. So if it's sunny <laughs> most of the year, and even if it's dark, you know, I lived in Fairbanks, Alaska for a couple years. And if it's dark and I can just sleep like 14 hours a day through the darkness and then just get up and do things and just do that for three months, that's fine too. Then in January, the sun comes back and then I run around. That's how my body's geared, right? That's how my body is geared to work. Oh yes, we sleep when it's dark for three months and then we get up and we, and when it's light for 20 hours a day, we're running around for 20 hours a day. But that is not how society is formulated. Instead, <laughs> I commute three days a week inside of, you know, a barrel of metal hurtling down a highway at 70 miles an hour, trying to dodge and navigate around other hunks of metal, which are also going at 70 miles an hour. And then I go into an office where, you know, 12 people share like a single open office layout. They all talk and they eat and run back and forth from the printer and there are meetings and meetings and meetings. And now I'm lucky uh, in that I negotiated a couple days a week from home at this job. So before that, I did have one day a week from home. And before that, I once got away with like a whole month where I got to work remotely and it was great. But getting to that place took a lot of work, a lot of cubicle living, a lot of negotiating, a lot of shit jobs. I was a waitress for a while which, man, as an introvert, that was painful and awful, a terrible experience. But you do what you got to do for money. You know, I'm an introvert by nature. And the older I get, the harder it is to endure people every day. And weekends. In fact, my, my spouse actually goes shopping 
He does the grocery shopping because I just don't want to deal with people. I get exhausted when I come back from running errands and stuff in the morning and I'm just exhausted. I just want to fall over at the end of the day. Uh, because I've had to chit chat, you know, with all these people. I'm just not made for it. I I've talked to several other writers who actually quit their day jobs, not because they were, oh, suddenly they're making all this money and they felt great about it and it was going to be financially stable, but simply because like they could not endure going into an office anymore or retail setting where they had to interact with humans constantly. It was just stealing all their energy and grinding them down. And they're like, I it's better to live on the cusp of poverty than to try and juggle writing in an office or retail job. And I completely get that. I get that some people are just, especially just, again, as you get older and you've just done it for years and years, you're just done. And I point this out because I feel like Americans in particular often forget that the system isn't made to support us. It is not made for us. It is not made for human individuals. It is made to make rich people richer. It is made to squeeze out as much as they can from us as human capital until we literally have a physical and or mental breakdown. Then we are tossed aside and they hire someone younger who hasn't burned out yet. That, that's it. That's not, you know, that it's not a secret. Any concessions we've gotten at some of these jobs uh, were, of course, were, were and are hard fought. Five day work weeks, eight hour days. And yes, plenty of jobs don't adhere to that. I get it. But for the ones that do, that was that was a fight. It continues to be a fight. Overtimes, any job protections, the very little that we even still have is being constantly eroded. This entire world is manufactured cars, the clog of people, the hours, constant interaction with humans required to survive <laughs> is forced on us. It's not made for us. So listen, if you need some help in order to cope with that and get through it, ideally, again, I would love to live in the woods. I'd take a year off as a mental health break, but I live in the U.S. and we don't get breaks like that. So I did get some help and I didn't feel bad about it in the least because I understand it's not me that's broken. It's this world I'm asked to live in. This world is constantly speeding ahead and there is no security, no assurances, no healthcare safety net. Whew. It is a wonder any of us can function in this world at all without help. And add on the writing career stuff. And whew, when you're a writer, you have to live with this strange cognitive dissonance where some people like think you're the best thing ever and to others like what you write is the worst shit on the planet and you're cutting off you know pieces of yourself and throwing them out there to the wolves and you pair that with the fact that again this is a capitalist system where you have to constantly be selling more and more with every book and again being a writer isn't exactly the healthiest thing to be either it's not always the healthiest and i now i've been in an especially good place lately certainly better than i felt for at least a year before the election, to be honest, or at least six to eight months before the election, maybe. I'm not completely sure why. It helps to finish a book, I guess. And maybe, again, the collection of things, like a higher dose of meds that finally kicked in after six or eight months. And we've had some great sunny weather, and that always lifts my mood. Of course, the idea that we could actually move to Canada soon, and maybe I could be a full-time writer when I'm 40-something. Cool. In some ways, I feel it's, it's also the last bit. I mean, the book, too. But there's this trouble with grinding along in, in your writing career for years and years in your job, too. And you start to lose sight of the end goal of, like, why you're, all do why you're doing it. What's the point? It's just write another book and then write another book and then sell another book and then do it and do it and do it and do it. As the healthcare situation, again, here in the U.S. got worse and worse and it became clear no one was going to fix it, I realized I was at a dead end. There was... No end to the grind in sight at all for me. It was like this death of this dream. 
you know, my dream of being a full-time writer someday, it was just over. Even waiting until I was like 67 <laughs> to be a full-time writer. Like, what is it, 67 and a half or whatever. A Medicare kicks in. We still have no guarantee there will even be a Medicare when I'm 67 and a half or whatever the fuck it is. Or that it will even kick in by then. I'm sure it'll be 85. And I was facing this really grim future. And I needed some hope. <laughs> I think we all need some hope. So working on the Canadian immigration process, even if it doesn't work out, some mystical things happen. It gave me some kind of a, for a future to look forward to. Something that all the grinding was actually going to get me. I needed that. Like every day I need that. I know there is a better future on the other side of this one. And I know Canada has problems and it could still go the way of the U.S. There's no magic escape route, right? There's no magic. There's just hope. But there is comfort, right? And, and I think it's, it's hope and it's also control because there is comfort in taking control of one's life and in feeling like you're doing things instead of just sitting there having things done to you. This also then leads me to some thoughts on managing your own writing expectations and burnout. And this is maybe, you know, probably more of a mid-career writing issue. But if, if you're a newer writer and you may have eventually hit this point, so keep, keep a lookout for it. With this low period I went through recently, I experienced a tremendous amount of burnout. Like the burnout was so bad that I just, I struggled. I struggled to finish any novel length work at all. I could concentrate on short stories that I was doing for Patreon each month. But like beyond that, like it, I just dithered. I completely lost the point. I, I, I lost the plot. I <laughs> lost the point too. I feel myself saying like, what's the point? And it's, it's that what's the point that's the sign of somebody in a really grim place. Like somebody who thinks, again, they, they have no future. Burnout is a real thing. And it, and you can keep pushing through the burnout, right? You can keep, again, we all got to eat. We all have to eat and we got to hit our deadlines. But, you know, we can, and we can bundle burnout up and be like, it's depression, it's anxiety, etc. You know, a lot of, but a lot of depression and anxiety has triggers and burnout is a big trigger, right? This is a thing that just sort of compounds and compounds and compounds. So in March of next year, I will have published 10 books and that's 10 books since 2011, which is a lot because I'm maintaining a day job. Okay, listen, whenever I'm like, somebody's like, oh, you do a book a year. That's a lot. And I was like, yeah, it is a lot. And then like, yeah, but so-and-so does four books, five books, six books, 10 books a year. And I'm like, well, they're also a full-time writer. But anyway, not to discredit that, it is, it is a lot of work. I was pushing hard during that time for a breakout book. And right now, I always, I'm always pushing for a breakout book. Like I was waiting. I felt like we were almost, I was in the cusp of breaking out. We just need like a movie deal something like anything that would let me write full time so that I didn't have to grind so hard. And this was again before the most recent healthcare debacle where I realized healthcare was just never going to be fixed. But so I pushed and pushed and pushed and while I catch my career afloat and that is no, you know, mere feat. <laughs> That's something to be proud of. There was no breakout. There was just the grind. I found that I got kind of angry and tired and super disappointed in myself, in the career, in the industry and everything. And while hard work helps, I have to understand, everyone has to understand, great financial success in any field, uh, but especially in some entrepreneur creator field, is often a matter of luck. It's like a rich person who takes interest in your work, uh, a movie producer who hears about your series at a party and likes it, Word of mouth generated by a timely book that takes off with librarians and super readers. Sometimes the luck part is all those things happening at once. 
uh, the Expanse uh, series was just renewed because it was canceled by Sci-Fi, and it turns out Jeff Bezos is a huge fan of the show, which I'm sure helped quite a bit when they were in negotiations at Amazon to get Amazon to pick it up. It helps to have rich people who really like your shit. In the meantime, right, all we can actually control, like I can't control whether or not Jeff Bezos wants to, loves my work and wants to make a show out of it, but I can control what I'm actually writing. So it's fitting then that really, and I mentioned this a little bit before, but I really think that it's the work in part that kind of saved me from this fallow, not a fallow period, just low period, because finishing The Light Brigade like a month or so ago was really restorative. It reminded me that, hey, look, I'm a real writer. I write books. I can do it. I'm amazing. It was it was a fascinating thing because my process had actually really changed quite a lot. I talk a lot about being a binge writer. I learned, you know, write five, ten thousand words at a stretch. This book, I could not do that. I couldn't do that for many reasons, uh, among them being it was a super complicated book. I had to keep going back and constantly revising what had come before. Usually I'll write the whole thing out, then I'll do, then I'll revise it. This one I had to read over and over and over and over and over and over, and over again because the time travel was so intricate. And again, I had to keep track of all the different characters and all the different changes that they'd all been through and where exactly the narrative that was. And it was really difficult. It, it was hard. It was hard to write. So my process changed. And that was scary to me because I kept saying again to my editor, oh, yeah, I'm like a week out. I have like 20,000 words. I can knock that out in a week. No problem. And it would be a week and then another week, another week. And he's like, yeah, we're in the-. I said, I know. But like every other book I've been able to knock out, I can do 20,000 words in a weekend sometimes. I couldn't do that with this book because I had to constantly go back and revise it. And so my whole process was different. And it really was kind of a little shocking to me and and that but I get it our process isn't going to be the same for every book and it's not going to be the same throughout the our entire lives it's just like anything else we all change as writers and in fact I'm kind of applying that now I'm working on Broken Heavens I've gone back to that one third book in the World Breaker Saga and I'm trying to employ some of the things I did with Light Brigade where again I'm, I'm just changing my process I'm writing every day not every day. I'm writing, trying to write at least every other day just to get into the habit of writing it again. I only, you know, sometimes a session I'll get a couple hundred words and it's sad to me. Other people are like, oh, a couple hundred words, that's great. Like to, for some people, like 1500 word session is amazing. But for someone, again, like me, who's like, I can write 10,000 words in eight hours. They're like, holy shit. It's a little bit of a blow to me that I'm like, okay, that was a good writing session. I wrote 400 words. <laughs> Light Brigade also really represented a real like level up in my craft. It's basically Starship Troopers with time travel. And uh, it's supposed to come out, yeah, March March 19th, I think, next year. So it's not that far away, actually. It's less than a year. It required like a lot of work that really broke my brain. But in a good way. In the breaking of the brain, that's a good way. When I reread the draft, after passing it on to my agent, my editor, the whole thing, it read like it was effortless. Like so easy. Like, wow, of course, this writer looks like, She's just the shit. She just shit this out one morning. It was no problem. When in fact, like, it was a lot of work and a lot of, you know, writing and revising and revising as I was rewriting. We see this, right, as readers, and we're like, oh, that looks effortless. And in fact, that takes, like, it took years of thinking through this through. You know, we sold this book. We sold a two-book deal with uh, Stars or Legion to Joe Monti at Saga Press. And the second book, I think, it was just before Stars trying to think when we actually decided it was going to be Light Brigade. This was years ago when we decided what the book was going to be. And I'd already written a short story that this is based on. It still took years of thinking about it and months of plotting and three other people helping to make the plot work. 
to make this book work. But we did it, you know, in the end we did it. And it wasn't just me shitting out some crappy book to hit a deadline. It was a book like I'm super proud of. I'm really proud of it. I, I do worry sometimes that the expectation that writers churn out a book or two or three or four or more a year is, I don't want to say ruining our work, but it's easier to just write the same kind of book over and over and over when you're writing at that pace. It's staggering. And if you do that, I think I, I think you're more likely to hit burnout. I mean, people will tell you again, you have to write every day or murder yourself to complete a work. And, you know, I get that. One reason I'm where I'm at is that, yes, I put in the work. But I certainly, again, as I had said, I don't work every day. And I'm doing the work at a pace that even I know isn't healthy. And I still drink too much. And I don't exercise enough. And I spend way too much money on bird seed and chipotle and dog toys. I need to get better about planning for my own future. And pacing myself. Leveling up the books instead of just screaming toward a deadline. But hey, that's publishing. That's life, really. We're screaming toward the deadline. One of the things I appreciated with Light Brigade was that it reminded me how much I like writing. Which sounds silly, but I'm always writing to a deadline. We are, we're screaming toward deadlines all the time. But I really enjoy writing, and I tried to concentrate more and more on just enjoy the process of writing. When uh, World of Warcraft first came out, I was, not first came out, but World of Warcraft was really hard to level up. Now it's very different. But I had somebody who said, you know, the key to leveling up is to actually just enjoy playing the game and to stop worrying about leveling up, to stop trying actively because you're just going to get frustrated and you get angry and you're grinding, right? It's that grind. He said, you have to stop it. You have to actually start enjoying it. Read the, actually get engaged with the story. I know it's not like the, you know, it's not no Bioware story, but be engaged with the story. Enjoy yourself. Have fun with your friends. And then you'll level up and it's great. And I felt like the writing was like that. I needed to stop feeling like I was just grinding. Like I can barely remember. I, again, as I had said before, I have never read The Stars Are Legion all the way through once. Like that's how fast, you know, I, I threw it together because that we had to hit a deadline and all these things. And I was just so tired. I was so tired, so tired, so burned out. I was like, I don't even want to reread this because I'm afraid it's all shit. And then I'm going to have to fix it. And I can't. I physically cannot fix it. I'm so tired. And it's really nice to go through the process and be proud, right, of what you have at the end, that I have read it all the way through. And I'm going to read it all the way through again. I actually have it printed out because we're going to do copy edits soon, you know, make my additions in addition to all the other ones we have. My agent sent me some too, and my editor will have some, and the copy editor will have some. So we still have several, at least two or three more passes to go. But man, I sure enjoyed that process a lot more than I have in several years. I think Empire Ascendant, I wrote like the second half in like four weeks, which was stupid. That was that was silly. Again, when you're writing at that speed, like you just you forget that this is what you love to do. You know, we got into this because we love to do it. Uh, so anyhow, I'm I'm going to I'm going to write up to wrap up this episode with this parting thought. And it, if the future you're gazing into is getting you down right now, fight it, remake it. Right? If you're not if you're like fighting is exhausting, then remake it, reimagine it. Even if you know like the odds are slim that you're going to succeed, at least you're not going to feel so helpless, right? Like things are just being done to you. Call your representatives, go out and vote, interview for that big job, take on a risk, business opportunity, move house, break off a shitty relationship, take up a new chance on a new love or something. Like treasure the people around you. Don't let all these shitbirds get you down because we are still here. And when it comes to your writing, yes, do the work. 
the work you can control. The work is the future. It's your future. And maybe it will inspire the future for someone else and make things look a little less grim. Help them get up and carry on forward into that future. Good luck out there, folks. Now, let's get back to work. Thank you.